in uh, Romans chapter 12. And like the last few weeks, uh, I have uh, just put together a PowerPoint just to get us through a good number of scripture passages. And Ami, I just realized, I'm so sorry, I forgot to go through this morning and add page numbers. So I think I'm going to have to leave you on your own today. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you're familiar with it. Good. Okay. All right. So today we will be looking at the responsibilities that we bear to one another in a church. Responsibilities of members. And uh, let me just get my Bible open here uh, to Romans chapter 15. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12. And let's just ask the Lord uh, for his blessing, okay? Thank you, Lord God, for uh, the work that you do uh, to uh, give us direction in our lives as to how we are to behave ourselves, uh, what would be most pleasing to you. And we pray, Lord, that what we look at this morning uh, would give us direction, but we recognize our need for your help to do these things. And so we pray that you would supply that as well as understanding. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's just look at uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Yeah, go right ahead. That's fine. Uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, the scripture says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Okay? So two words there, a little phrase that shows up twice, or one another. And actually, when you go through your Bible, you find that phrase quite frequently in your New Testament. The New Testament has a lot to say about one another. And frequently, it's in the context of commands. You can see that here. Paul is giving us, the Holy Spirit is giving us a command to love one another and to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. Um, these commands that we see throughout the New Testament, there's quite a number of them. And uh, let's just, uh, I just want to make a couple of points here about the nature of these commands, these one another commands, and then we will look at majority of them in the New Testament today. The first thing is that these one another commands are mutual. In other words, that means there's got to be two people and the command, fulfilling the command, has got to go both ways. One person must love the other, and the other must love the first. Does that make sense? So one another goes both ways. They are mutual, and that means that these are commands that are fulfilled between two believers. Okay? The second thing, just to notice about this, is that these one another commands function within the boundaries of local churches. It doesn't mean that we don't fulfill these towards believers who are not part of our, our, our immediate assembly. But we would have a pretty, a pretty high bar to attain if we had to fulfill all of these one another commands to every believer in the world and if Christ were going to hold us accountable to do that. And I think when we looked at the membership triangle a while ago, we kind of got that general idea that there are commands that the scripture gives us and that our responsibility is to fulfill those towards the believers that God gathers together in our local churches. The third thing is that these one another commands 
define then the church's culture. What's it supposed to feel like when you walk into a church? What's supposed to be going on in that church between the members? And these one another commands help draw, they paint a picture for us of what it's supposed to feel like and look like and sound like in a church. Fourth, these one another commands are from Christ himself and they are to be obeyed then. And number five, perhaps you've heard of a church covenant. Not every church has a church covenant. But a church covenant has frequently been used for about the last 500 years in uh, Protestant churches. And all that the church covenant is, is it's just a single page document that kind of just lists out some of these things that says, this is what we're going to try to fulfill towards each other. And frequently churches will read back through those church covenants uh, together for the sake of reminding themselves, this is our responsibility towards one another as fellow members of the body of Christ. So we're going to go through a bunch of these today, and there's about 20-something, a bit, a bit north of 25 of them that we're going to look at. I've grouped just a couple of them together so that we have one point instead of three points for these three because I think some of them can go together. But I think we'll look at just about every one of them in the New Testament today. So the first is, uh, we're in Romans 12. Let's just turn over to Romans 16. Uh, and I've tried to put these together into maybe just a little bit of an outline to help us group them together a little bit. But let's look at Romans 16, 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now that greeting of one another, that command shows up quite frequently in the New Testament, actually. Uh, it shows up in six different passages. I'm sorry, five different passages of Scripture. And it says that we are to greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, So what does that mean we are supposed to be doing uh, towards one another when they come in the door? Well, first of all, I'm not sure that this command is limited to just the 30 seconds when somebody walks in the door. You greet them and then you fulfill the command. And the reason why I say that is because Matthew chapter 5, verse 47 says this, If you only greet your brothers... What more are you doing than other people? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And there's a little bit of a hint there as to what this greeting is supposed to be about. A greeting is supposed to be a means of accepting one another as a brother publicly. In other words, if somebody walks in the door, you don't even seem to know that they're there. You're not really receiving them in warmly. But brothers, well, it's only natural that you would greet a brother because... He's part of the inside, right? He's part of the family. And so this greeting of one another is something that we are to extend to one another. And I think the, the primary idea of what is involved here is welcoming someone into the inside. When you read through the New Testament, uh, you see things like outsiders and insiders. You see things like brothers and not brothers and sisters. And I think what, we're, what, what Paul is getting at here when he says greet one another with a holy kiss is he's saying whatever in your culture is going to say to someone, come on in the door and welcome, you're part of us. That is what we are to extend to one another. So what about the holy kiss? Is this appropriate? Well, the kiss was the standard greeting in the ancient world. And if you go to France today, you'll still encounter that. Uh, men kissing one another. Uh, women the same. How do we greet someone and draw them into a circle today? So if there's a big gathering, big family gathering, and somebody who's not part of the family shows up, 
you're probably going to greet them a little bit differently than if your brother shows up. And you're going to welcome him into the circle because he's part of the inside, right? So how would we show, come on in and welcome, you're part of the group. We all recognize you as part of this group. Well, a uh, smile seems to go a long way, doesn't it? A uh, handshake seems to go a long way in our culture. I think probably the best way to capture this is a sincere interest in the other person. People can't just walk in the door and it's like, oh, I didn't even see them come in. It's that we extend to one another the welcome that we should because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's only natural that we would receive one another. The second command that we find in the New Testament is to show honor to one another. And we were just there in Romans chapter, 10, Romans chapter 12. We read the passage. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Show each other the honor of regarding them to be the more significant person than you in the middle of the church. We frequently begin conversations asking about the other person. How are you? And that's generally about as far as our interest in each other goes, isn't it? Because then our conversation tends to center back on myself and what's been happening with me. And that shows that I'm the most important one, right? I'm the one who should be talked about in the conversation. But Paul says, the Holy Spirit says to us, outdo one another in showing honor to each other. Make the other person the significant one, not yourself. The third command that we find in the New Testament is that we are to humble ourselves before one another. And I didn't, I'm sorry, I should have told you just maybe my little heading over some of these. So just a little subsection of them here. I'm kind of thinking of these commands as the general atmosphere in the church. What's it supposed to feel like as you walk in? What's supposed to be the general atmosphere and culture in the church? Well, we're supposed to welcome each other in. Uh, we're supposed to show honor to one another. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, we are to humble ourselves before one another. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders or be subject to the elder, uh, depending on whether or not uh, that word elder is referring to the elders from the first four verses, the church leaders, or whether it's just older people, people more advanced in the faith than you or somebody who has more years than you. But whatever it is, the younger ones are supposed to subject themselves to the elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. You ever wondered what to wear to church? This is the only passage I can find in the New Testament that tells us what to wear to church. And it says, clothe yourself with humility. Come dressed in that. This was Christ's mind. Even though he existed in God's very form, he did not regard that equality with God as something to be grasped hold of. No, Father, I won't do it. Don't you realize I'm equal with you? How can I humble myself to die for these sinners? No, Christ humbles himself. And he comes, he submits himself, even to death on a cross. And Paul says, let that mind be in you. Humility in the church is counting others as more worthy of your time, more worthy of your life, more worthy of your resources, more worthy of your love than you yourself are. It is humbling yourself towards one another. And God, 
responds to that with giving grace to the humble. Okay, our fourth command is in, you're in Romans 12. No, I'm sorry, you're not. You're in 1 Peter chapter 5. Romans chapter 12 and verse 16. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The exhortation here in verse 16 is to live in harmony with other Christians. And that means there's got to be certain things among Christians that could cause disharmony, right? Otherwise, this command is not really necessary. So are there things among Christians that could cause disharmony? There are plenty of them, aren't there? How do we handle that? Have we ever seen these kinds of things cause disharmony? Well, Paul gives us three things here that will help us to live in harmony with one another. Three matters to help us know how to do this. The first is, don't be haughty. Don't regard your own viewpoints so highly, he says. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. And that just means don't be high-minded. Don't think of yourself as so much higher and better than everyone else in the way that you think. Instead, associate with the lowly. Now, that's really hard to do, isn't it? To find the lowly people and to step down to associate with them. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I think there is a sense in which we all are the lowly ones for whom Christ has died. There are, are there any brothers or sisters in the church who are beneath you and with whom you would find it hard to associate? If so, perhaps you're a little too high-minded. And at the end of the day, that high-mindedness will lead to disharmony. And the third thing that Paul gives us here is to how to live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own sight. We live in a world that defines truth in terms of what you think. If you think it's true, it's true for you. If somebody else thinks it's true for them, it's true for them. There could be a lot of different ways that we conceive of what truth is. But at the end of the day, that is a whole world of people who are wise in their own eyes. They know best for themselves. And the scripture says that in the church, we are to never be wise in our own eyes. Our own way of thinking is not to be the dominant one in the church. The church is Christ's body. He is the head. We submit ourselves to him. The church is not the place for independent thinkers like me to vocalize my own independent thoughts. And that goes for the pastor as well. This is not a place where any individual Christian gets to impose his own ways upon other people as though he has it figured out and other people don't. Or she has this figured out. It is for us to live in harmony with one another and not to regard ourselves as so wise as we think we are. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 and we'll find another one here. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 15. Catch up with you in my Bible here. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, 
but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The context here is that this good is to be done in every situation. Do good to everyone, to one another. And look at the beginning of the verse. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. In other words, evil has been thrown out. Someone has done evil. And the exhortation is don't return evil for evil. Instead, seek to do good to one another. So imagine a situation where you have been wronged by someone else. What is to be our response to that? To get even justice? To take the matter into my own hands? The scripture says that when we have received evil, our responsibility is to do good to one another. Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Do good, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. And 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 18. The rich, which who in Australia is not rich compared to the rest of the world. The rich are to do good. They are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And I think at that point we get a little window into one avenue in which we can do good to other people. We can do good to them with our words, our actions. We can do good to them with the material blessings that God has poured out upon us. Um, the rich are supposed to be rich, not just in the number of dollars that they own, but rich in good works. They are to be generous and ready to share, and in that they are to do good to one another. So one more, and then we'll just recapture now, what we've got here so far, as far as uh, the general culture in a church, and this one is found in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25. Excuse me, Ephesians 4.25. Lots of turning today, and uh, that's a, a good thing. It means that the scriptures are speaking. Uh, we are reading them together and trying to discern uh, what the scripture has for us here. Okay, so Ephesians 4 verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor does that mean the person who lives next door to you well sure tell the truth to them but let each one speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another so there we have the context of the local church and in that context we are to put away falsehood speak the truth Galatians, sorry, Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. If you'd like, you can turn to Acts chapter 5. I think there's something very instructive about the story of Ananias and Sapphira in this regard. And I'm not filling out a lot of these commands because there's so many of them for us to get through this morning. Um, and by the way, we'll come back and summarize them all at the end. We can summarize them in one command at the end. And if you've already looked at the notes, you, can, you found that and maybe you're already getting that idea. But what's happening with Ananias and Sapphira? Here they are. They sell a piece of property and they bring the proceeds, or at least some of the proceeds. They lay them at the apostles' feet in order for the apostles to distribute for the needs of the saints. And yet they do it in such a way as to make it appear that they have brought all the proceeds, what generous people these are. In other words, they have promoted a false view of things. 
And the church, as they look on Ananias and, Ananias and Sapphira's actions, the church would have been deceived, thinking, oh, they brought all of it when actually they only brought some of it. And it's instructive, I think, then, if we look at verse 3, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. That's a pretty strong statement when everything that we've read so far is that they have lied to man. And yet, Peter says, you haven't lied to man, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have lied to God. What is it to mislead, to deceive a congregation of spirit-indwelt people? Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit himself. And it's not that the Holy Spirit got tricked. He knew the way things really were. But nevertheless, to lie to the Holy Spirit's people, Peter says, not man, but God. I think raising the bar as to how important the truth is in the church. It's one thing to lie to an unbeliever. It's another thing to lie to God's people in whom is the Holy Spirit of God. And by that, I'm not saying go ahead and lie to, other, lie to unbelievers. I'm just saying that Peter really sets this on a high level here for us. It's really astounding to read that. And that really highlights, I think, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, speak the truth to one another. So I think this gives us an, a feeling for the general, the general culture in a church, greeting one another, welcoming them in, showing honor to one another, humbling ourselves before one another, living in harmony with one another, seeking to do good to one another, and speaking the truth to one another. What about, does this mean that we are to merely accept individuals as they are. Whatever you are, whoever you are, come on in the door. This is a non-judgmental atmosphere. Is that what this means? Is there no room to call anyone to grow in Christ in the church? Are we all just to be, just let people be as they are? They'll be who are, no. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. And this is a uh, fairly gentle verse. We'll look at some less gentle verses in a minute. But we'll start off with the gentle one. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage one another as though we need encouragement. Build one another up as though we have some progress to make and we are to help each other in making that progress, in building each other up in Christ. Just turn over a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is not far away from 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and we'll look at verse 24. 
encourage and edify one another, but then this one, encourage love and good works. First, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider one another. Let us consider, I think the King James says, let us consider one another, and I, I like that actually. Let's look at one another, consider one another. For what purpose? Let us consider one another how to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, the word stir up is actually the word that you would use to describe a burr under someone's saddle. It stirs up the horse. It provokes him. And that's why I think the King James uses the word provoke, right? Let's consider how to provoke one another to love and good works. There is supposed to be some provoking going on in the church. And it's supposed to be prodding each other forwards. Hey, brother, how can you love more? How can you manifest more good works? Uh, it's quite a strong word to be a burr in someone's saddle to push them forwards towards love and good works. And this takes some contemplation and consideration. How can I help my brothers and sisters more fully love God and others? What could you do to help them with that? How could you help them to more fully manifest good works as a result of their faith. That takes a lot of contemplation and consideration and thought. Let us consider one another how to stir one another up to love and good works. And this is one of the purposes of our gathering together because that's what he says in verse 24. Let's consider how to do this. Verse 25, not neglecting, assembling of ourselves, not neglecting meeting together, but instead, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, the day drawing near. So the nearer we get to Christ's return, the more this is necessary. And the reason for that is because Paul tells us things are going to get worse and worse. And so as the world gets worse and worse and its influence on believers gets stronger and stronger and more deceptive, that has to be offset by believers working diligently to stimulate one another to love and good works. Let's go to Romans 15 and find another passage uh, that gives us these same kind of ideas. When we walk in the door on Sunday morning, our role is not simply to be present and to let other people go out the door without realizing any change. Uh, we have the responsibility, Romans 15 verse 14, we have the responsibility to instruct and admonish one another. We read Colossians 3.16 last week, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. But Romans 15.14 says, I myself am satisfied about you, brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct, able to admonish one another. All of you, Paul says, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. So when Paul writes to the church at Rome, he says to that whole congregation, you are able to admonish one another. And Colossians 3.16 comes back and tells us, do it. Let the word of Christ that dwells dwell in you richly and then teach and admonish one another in psalms. Uh, in, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to the Lord. So as we come into the church, or even probably, I think, from Ephesians 4, the order should be as we go out of the church. We come, the pastor teacher equips the saints through the preaching of the word, 
so that the saints then are prepared to do the work of the ministry. And as we go out of the church and throughout the week then, our responsibility is to instruct and admonish one another. Hey, brother, how did that sermon on Sunday strike you? What's hard for you to grasp about that? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about God from that sermon? What would it look like for you to follow? How can I pray for you about that, that the Lord would help you to more fully obey his word that we heard on Sunday morning? I want to exhort you, brother, to obey the word that the pastor preached. on. These are the kinds of things that should be going on informally in a church where we instruct and admonish one another. And so much the more as we see the day approaching. So that's on the, the giving side of things. Instruct, encourage, admonish, exhort. What about if you're on the other end of that? You're the one being exhorted. You're the one being instructed. You're the one being admonished. And the scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. When you are on the receiving end, we submit ourselves to this. It doesn't mean that our brothers and sisters are infallible and coming to us and we do everything exactly like they think that we should. But it does mean that when a brother or sister says, hey, you really should think about this. I think something's wrong here. I think you have, you have the responsibility to, to correct course here, sister. Oh, no. no. No, no, no. We submit ourselves. I will give that some thought. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Uh, pray for me about that. I need it. Uh, yes, the Lord's been working on, you know, we submit ourselves. We, we lay ourselves down underneath the ministry of our brothers and sisters to us. Not because we feel that they're especially worthy of my submission to them. You see how it's worded there? Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. No human being is ever ultimately worthy of my trust. Right? I'm failing. You're a failing person. To trust a human being is really dangerous. But what about submit yourself out of reverence for Christ? He is the one who says, it will be safe and well for you if you will get together with other believers and you will help each other to grow. doesn't mean that anybody's infallible in that case, but we submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Two more here. I think two more. Three more. And then we will be done with this section. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter, I'm sorry, James chapter 5. We're in Ephesians 5. Two of them here in James chapter 5. When we gather together on the Lord's Day throughout the week, what is supposed to characterize our interactions? Submitting ourselves, ex exhortation. James chapter 5 and verse 16 says, I'm in 1 Peter 5, no wonder it doesn't say what it's supposed to say. <laughs> Let me turn over to James chapter 5. There we go. Therefore, Confess your sins or your faults to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, or the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, accomplishes much, the King James says. What is supposed to be the culture in a church with regard to sin? Is sin something to be carefully concealed behind a veil of, of, of outward 
righteousness and piety. Does everybody have to look like the pastor? The big man up front. He's leading the way. Does everybody have to look like him on Sunday mornings? Or is there room for us to say, I'm a sinner. I'm struggling. I need help. Please pray for me. That is supposed to be the culture in the church. Sin thrives in the dark. In the dark recesses of my heart, my sin thrives and it lives and it animates me all week long. And you know, I, th- I think it's actually pretty easy for us to confess our sins to God. After all, God already knows. <laughs> but what about to say to another person, yeah, I'm not the greatest person in the world. I am a sinner. Here's something I've been struggling with. Can you please pray for me? If we did that towards one another, would we be letting anybody in on any secrets that they don't already know? In other words, we come to church, we dress nicely. If I say to you, hey, guess what? I'm a sinner. Is that anything you don't already know about me? (laughs) We already know this about ourselves. Why? Because we say, I'm a Christian. What's that mean? I'm a sinner and I need a Jesus Christ. Yeah. So that's the culture that's supposed to prevail in a church. Not a let's cover everything up and appear righteous. Let's get some sin out into the open and say, not on Facebook. We don't need to air it on Facebook. We don't need to put up on the slides at the beginning of the church service. Bob is struggling with this this week. No, no, no. This is supposed to be one to another in the church. A couple of trusted friends. Would you pray for me about this, sister? I have really been struggling this past week with this. And what is the result? When we manifest that humility that says, I need help. What does God return to our humility? He pours out his what upon the humble? His grace. So as we confess our faults one to another and as we pray for one another, we are healed. Wouldn't it be nice to have a righteous person, a brother in the church, who's praying for you about this when the scripture says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. It accomplishes much. What kind of, what does it accomplish? It accomplishes healing for you from sin. But that only comes when we humble ourselves before one another. We confess faults to one another and we pray for one another then. We have the responsibility to take one another home in our hearts and to pray for one another. And the result is we will be healed. All right, we're in James 5. You can go with me now to 1 Peter. I was in 1 Peter 5 a minute ago, but we'll actually go to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, next book of the Bible, 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. And this is our last one for this little subsection. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied or manifold grace. Where do we get grace from God? What's the pipe that he pours it through? Well, Paul tells the elders in Acts 20, Ephesus, he says, I commit you to God to the word of his grace that is able to build you up. Okay, so we read the word. God gives us his grace as we read the word. The author to the Hebrews says, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We get grace through prayer. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, he says, Speak not corrupt communication, but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister 
grace to the heroes. So we receive grace from our fellowship with one another, our good communication. And here we receive grace as we employ our spiritual gifts to minister to one another. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards, good waitresses and waiters of God's varied manifold grace. Think of coming to church, sitting down, and here comes a waiter with a bucket of God's grace for you. How does that happen? Or you're the one serving up God's grace. How does that happen? What gift has Christ given you? And why did he give that to you? And if you would fulfill that, would that not be the Holy Spirit ministering his grace to your fellow brothers and sisters? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, no one has received the gift of the Spirit for his own edification. We have been given the gifts of the Spirit for pouring them out towards other people for their spiritual well-being. And so use your spiritual gifts for others' sake, for one another's sake. Paul says the same thing in Romans 12. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace that's given us, there's lots, this is what Peter means by manifold, varied. There's lots of different gifts in the church, and that's because we all need different forms of grace. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, and there you've got a list, beginning in verse 6, of all the different kinds of gifts, and how we are to use all of the different kinds as channels of God's grace to individuals. No one is given his gift for his own edification. So use your gift, get to work, and employ it for others' benefit. And you know, in, 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 in one way, there's a simplicity towards how we minister to one another. It isn't a matter of scratching your head and saying, ah, oh, I wonder what my spiritual gift is. I have no idea. As you come into the church, people will call upon you. And that is the way that God is going to make use of you in the church. If someone comes up to you every Sunday and they say, Hey, brother, can you pray for me about this? And you use the opportunity that you have that week to pray for him. You are ministering in the body. If someone comes up to you and they say, Hey, could you help me out? I'm really struggling with my kids. You've been a mother. What do you think? How am I supposed to handle this situation? I'm a young mother to an older. When that older woman opens up her mouth, it is God's grace to that younger woman. When she opens up her mouth, gives wisdom from the scriptures, that is the way that God gives us his grace through our communication with one another. So, we come to church to knock the rough edges off of each other, uh, if we can say it that way. Let me see what time it is here. We're going to go through, I think we can get through the rest of these fairly quickly. What about when there are differences between brothers in a church? What about when there are different convictions, different understandings of exactly how we to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to the Lord in matters where Scripture is not clear? And Christians significantly and sincerely disagree. How are we supposed to treat one another when there are differences between brothers? Not differences on the level of the faith, Jesus Christ, the Trinity, our salvation, the Holy Spirit. But differences on the level of a finer point of theology. 
that Christians have always disagreed about or maybe exactly what it looks like to live the Christian life? Can I wear clothing that has two different kinds of, of, of fibers in it? Or does the Old Testament law forbid me from wearing polyester and cotton mix in my clothing? Uh, how is it that if one person believes one thing and another person believes the other thing, how are we supposed to relate in the church? And let's look at Romans 14 and 15. There's a number of commands here, one and others, that give us some help with that. Romans chapter 14. Uh, sorry, Romans 15. We'll start in verse 7, okay? Romans 15 and verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This isn't referring to the first 30 seconds of your interaction with somebody on Sunday. Well, yeah, welcome them in and then turn a cold shoulder because they're different than you are. No, welcome them as Christ has welcomed you. This is referring to how we treat someone. And the context, if you look back at chapters 14 and 15, you'll find out that there's a question under discussion here of meeting, eating meat offered to idols. And the really significant thing I think about these chapters is that it seems that the disagreement was between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, they're going right ahead eating the pork. And the Jews are saying, but Moses said in the law that we were not supposed to eat the pork. And what's really significant, I think, there is that the Jews actually have the Old Testament law on their side, if that makes sense. And Paul's actually going to tell us in the book of Galatians that that, that, that law has been set aside, that eating pork is fine now. We're not under the Mosaic dietary restrictions. But nevertheless, in this time of transition, Jews aren't fully aware of all of what God has done in Christ to set aside those dietary restrictions. And so because of that, Ethan, because of that, you've got conflict between these two and one's appealing to the scripture and the other one's not. And in that circumstance, Paul says, in the midst of that disagreement, receive one another in the Lord. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. King James says, not for doubtful disputations. In other words, we receive one another, but it's not, come on in, let's go to war with each other. It's receive one another, but not for the purpose of quarreling. Receive one another as Christ has received you. Uh, Christ has opened his arms to people like me, and I've been wrong a lot. And you've been wrong a lot. And it doesn't mean that any one of us has arrived, and we've got a corner on the truth, and we've got it all figured out. So receive that brother who's got things figured out that you don't, just as he's going to receive you because you've got things figured out that he doesn't. Uh, and in that way, we manifest the love of Christ towards one another. And this means just two things quickly. In verse 13 of chapter 14, verse 13 of chapter 14, it means do not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. There's things you've got figured out in the Christian life. And there's things that he's got figured out in the Christian life. And you can get in each other's way in your argument about it. In fact, you can live in such a way as to embolden the conscience of another believer and cause him to sin. Well, brother so-and-so is doing it, and my conscience is bugging me, but I'm going to go right ahead and do it. And you can destroy someone for whom Christ has died, Paul says. So don't look down on another believer as inferior because he doesn't hold all the same standards and convictions that you do. Instead, verse 15 of chapter 14, 
Instead, build one another up. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love by eating it. Instead, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. Don't tear the building down. Build him up. What can you do to build that brother up in the faith? And in this circumstances, it might, it's, it's, Paul says, well, you might be able to go ahead and eat the meat because you're a Gentile and you understand what God's done in Christ to set the Old Testament law aside. But nevertheless, when you get around Jewish brothers, just keep that to yourself and, and just, just, just bow down to all their scruples and all the things that they're concerned about so that you don't tear them down as believers in Jesus Christ. Did Christ insist that you be the most spiritually mature person before he let you into his circle of friends? No. And so we receive one another. We associate with sinners because guess what? That's what we all are. Uh, we receive one another and we build one another up. I'm just going to run through several of these pretty quickly because they're pretty self-explanatory. Um, we have here wait for one another at the Lord's table. And we might come back to that in a couple of weeks when we talk about the Lord's table. How about this one in Colossians 3? We put up with one another. Uh, have you ever put up with someone? You only have to put up with people if there's something to put up with, right? But we are told to bear with one another in Colossians 3. Put up with each other. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. Don't speak evil of one another, Paul says. I'm sorry, James says in James chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, we should be each other's uh, most trustworthy friends in that sense. We, can be con we should be confident that, one and that the other people in the, in, in the body are not going about speaking evil of one another. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 7 I don't think this, this is not actually a command that believers cannot sue one another, but Paul's pretty strong that it shouldn't happen. <laughs> so you can read exactly how he phrases it there. It would be a terrific loss, he says, for Christ's sake, if you went to law with another brother in your church. 1 Corinthians 12, care for one another. Romans chapter 12, relieve one another's distresses. And in each one of those contexts of those four verses there, it's financial distress that's in, in view. Uh, you can see that particularly in the last one, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 3. If you've got a widow in your church, she doesn't have any family to care for her. What are you supposed to do? Watch her starve? No, the church has a responsibility to put her on the list and to care for her, just like we see in Acts chapter 6. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, be hospitable to one another. This is where a lot of those one another's will happen in each other's homes. Uh, and do not grumble against another. Uh, we won't spend a lot of time uh, developing that, but a couple of passages there. And finally, rescue one another from sin. If you see a brother who's in sin, you who are spiritual have the responsibility to deliver him, to go after him. Um, imagine a brother lying face down in the mud. He's been tripped up by sin. What are we to do? The spiritual ones are to restore him. And who are the spiritual ones? Is that the pastors? Well, if you look at the end of chapter 5, you'll find out who the spiritual ones are. It's people who walk in the Spirit. 
And so that's hopefully every Christian. Every Christian ought to throw out the lifeline to those who have fallen into sin. And of course, in your interactions with people in a local congregation, you find out somebody that you're close to, you know that they're in sin and not, nobody else knows. It's your responsibility to go to them and to confront them, to, to seek their restoration. What is it that we are seeking from someone when they're in sin and we go to them? What are we trying to re achieve? Repentance, turning away from sin. Yeah. This is a burden that we all carry. So let's sum this up. How can we sum up all these commands? Well, as we have gone all the way through these, there's a couple that we've left out, and I think they are the summation of everything that we've seen. And it's where we began with Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Uh, love one another with brotherly affection. In 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to catch the PowerPoint up here so we can see these here. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. In John chapter 13, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. This is not a command that we love the ungodly, though we must love the ungodly for Christ's sake. But when Christ says that you love one another, he's talking about believer to believer. And we've got a pretty high, important job to do here. Love one another just as I have loved you. Wow. <laughs> that is a tall order. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And I thought we would finish this morning by reading 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a chapter for weddings, though there's nothing wrong with reading it at weddings. But chapter 12 is all about the body of Christ and our spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 is all about the body of Christ and our spiritual gifts. And Paul says this then in chapter 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I had the ability to speak in all sorts of different tongues, not just one, if I could speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But didn't have love, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and understood all mysteries, the spiritual gift of understanding, if I had the spiritual gift of all knowledge, if I had the spiritual gift of faith so that I could remove mountains but didn't have love, I'm nothing. What about the gift of mercy, the gift of giving? If I give away all that I have, delivering up even my body to be burned but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Can you do that? Can you love as Christ loved? The fruit of the Spirit is love. The Spirit is the one who constructs the body, and the Spirit is the one who breathes the love of Christ throughout the whole thing. And in that way, as we bear the fruit of the Spirit, the Father is glorified. So may the Lord give us grace to love one another as Christ has loved us in some specific ways. One, two other things that I will just say, and you can go and chase these down uh, later on. If you take all these commands that we've looked at and you compare them with, Roman, with, with 1 Corinthians 13, you can see a lot of parallels. For example, don't be arrogant, 1 Corinthians 13. We saw a command. Don't be arrogant. Don't be high-minded. You see a lot of parallels, meaning that the summation of all these commands is to love. But the other thing that you'll notice, and you'll just have to read back through all these passages with these commands, is how frequently they are connected to Christ's own love for us. For example, receive one another, welcome each other as Christ has received you. That sounds a lot like love one another as Christ has loved you. Uh, manifest love in these ways so that Christ and his love live in the church uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's pray and then see if there's any questions. Thank you, Lord for giving us a place, a glorious place, to live called the church and for the love of Christ that is displayed so imperfectly, Lord. We fall so far short, but it is here that we find others to love us as Christ has loved us. We have opportunity to love others as Christ has loved us. Lord, he laid down his life for the brothers and sisters who we sit beside in local churches. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to lay down our lives for those same people, that in this way we might love as he loved. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us discernment to know what sins must be covered, for love covers a multitude of sins. And what sins and errors must be addressed? Uh, Lord, I pray that in all of these things, in all of our confrontation, in all of our encouragement and exhortation, that we might seek the well-being of others rather than ourselves. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.